Bonnie is back with me today, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 652. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A few times a year, we change up the conversation here, and I invite Bonnie to join me for a conversation with you about the questions that you have been sending into us. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for the future Q&A episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the very best way to get it to us. And Bonnie's here with me to respond to a few of these questions. Hello, Bonnie. Good to see you. Hey, Dave, great to be here. I want to warn you and everyone else. I I think you already know this, Dave, but uh, some of the questions are not only just hard today, but they're also topics that can get me a little riled up. I think people like it when you get riled up. Get a little feisty over here. Not toward the people who asked, but toward the situations they're describing. Indeed. You have a strong cadre of Bonnie supporters in the Coaching for (laughs) Leaders community. In fact, I don't remember if I said this on a past episode or not, so forgive me if this is a repeat, but someone was with us recently who listens to the show and said that someone they know who also listens says, oh, that that Dave guy's nice, but Bonnie is really the reason to listen. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't know, but I just think we have to think about frequency because I'm not on here very much anymore. So it's easy to be well thought of when you're on here every once in a while, as opposed to you doing this wonderful, amazing audio work with regularity. Well, as you do too. And now that we have set you up on a pedestal, yes, Bonnie, a, a no, nowhere to go but down. A brilliant. Nowhere to go but down from here. So I'll, get ready, everybody. I'll, I'll help you work. And I'm going to let you read the first question. I'll start and then we'll let you work into your brilliance here as we go. Yes. And my feistiness too. All right. So the first question comes from Tony. Tony writes, I'd like to gather as much feedback as possible within my team. And I think giving feedback about each other is a great opportunity. That's why I'm planning to create a form where everyone on my team is able to evaluate each other. It is going to be anonymous, so everyone can be honest, dot, 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 or not, question mark. (laughs) Based on their feedback, I can give a better or actually worse evaluation at the end of the year. And that's my problem. How should I communicate about giving honest feedback about colleagues when they could destroy the other's annual salary increase option with that little single improvement suggestion? What is the good way of communicating about this? Should I say, quote, be honest, it's just an FYI for me, and I won't take it into account on your feedback for the salary increase? Or should I tell the truth? such as, quote, be honest, and yes, it is going to, or it could possibly affect the people's salary increases, but still, it's a great opportunity to help others start working on their improvement areas. Bonnie, I have to admit, when I read this question from Tony and it came in, I it was my first inclination to write back and say, no, <laughs> do not do this, at least not the way that you've described. Uh, however, I instead responded to him and said, what's the outcome that you're trying to gain from doing this? And he wrote me back and said, A few things, but the context of the main sentence that he sent back was, I want to help people improve through constructive feedback. 
And when I read that, I thought, okay, great. Now we know what he's trying to do. And so now knowing that, I think there's a lot here that doesn't line up with that outcome. So first and foremost, there's a trust and honesty piece here that you mentioned at the end, Bonnie, of should I tell the truth? So my answer to that is yes, tell the truth. If you were going to go forward with this, and I don't love this strategy for a number of reasons, which I'll mention, but if you were going to go forward with this, yes, I do think you need to be honest. If it is the case that people giving feedback to each other on the team is potentially going to lead to them being evaluated differently, I think you need to say that up front. Because if you don't, and they find out afterwards, if you promise confidentiality, you say that it's not going to, and then you do, I think you've broken trust with them in a way that is very hard to recover from. And if you expect and want people to actually improve through constructive feedback, that would send me a message if I was an employee on this team that do not give feedback at all. Don't be direct or honest with my feedback because it might come back to bite me or harm someone else. So I think you are, you're potentially being counterproductive by doing that. Now, what are you trying to do here, which is actually help people improve? There's different kinds of feedback. And Sheila Heen, when she was on the show a while back, talked about it. She has a wonderful book called Thanks for the Feedback. We featured it back on episode 143. And she says, at least from her perspective, there's three kinds of feedback. Appreciation, People sometimes ask for feedback, and what they really want is appreciation and acknowledgement, right? Which we all do at times. There's coaching, which is helping you to get better at something, which is what I hear you saying, Tony, that you actually want to create on your team. And then there's evaluation. Where do you rank or stand? And I think these last two in particular are really key for this question because what you're saying in your question is that you maybe want to do a bit of evaluation as far as how you're going to tactically do this, but your actual outcome that you want is coaching. You want people to get better at something. And those are not the same. They're both important, but they're not the same. And so I think if you're going to try to have people actually get better and you're going to do that through the process of them actually getting more comfortable of giving feedback to each other, this wouldn't be the place I'd start. So where I would begin is first and foremost, maybe you as a team, if you haven't already had this conversation, begin by setting some norms or some expectations on how do we do this as a team? What's our expectations about how do we give feedback? And if you've never had that conversation, you, your team, your employees about like, what do we do? Why do we do that? What's the outcome we'd want? How would we do that if we went through the process of doing that and have some norms around that? I think that'd be a helpful place to start. And we've had a lot of conversations in the past on how to create team expectations. I'll put a few links in the, in the episode notes if you want to dive in on that. But the other way that I would enter into this with a team that maybe hasn't done this before, and you don't mention this in the question, but my sense of the context of it is there hasn't been a lot of this, this that's happened before, at least not in a substantial way. So I think that a perhaps easier way to enter into this in a way that's more safe is to do something like Marshall Goldsmith would call feed forward, which is rather than evaluating the past of perhaps giving a suggestion for the future. And you could do this as an exercise. And in fact, I have done this as an exercise coming into client events and events with people that I hadn't met before or people who had not spent a lot of time working together before or had different levels of trust. And the way you can set that up is each person, you can invite each person who's participating in that exercise to come with something that they are working on. 
or they would like a suggestion on. And that person articulates to another person or the group, hey, here's something I'm working on that I'd like to get better at, or maybe something I'd like a suggestion on, or I'm looking for ideas on this. And then what the other party does or parties is says, well, here's a suggestion on how you might do that in the future or next time. So it's not an evaluation of the past. No one's allowed to talk about the past. It is a, in the future, here's maybe one thing you might consider doing. And that's it. And what that allows you to do is to enter into a place where people are providing some feedback, if you will, and some suggestions, but we're not talking about doing evaluation. We're talking about it through the lens of coaching and improvement. And if you do a little bit of that and just start off in a very safe way, I think that gets you to a place where you, the members of your team, start to become a little bit more comfortable of giving and receiving feedback, of learning from each other. And then maybe there's a place where you do something a little bit more. But I think in most situations, I'd be really hesitant, unless it is the model of the organization on performance management to have team members formally giving each other feedback and evaluation. I think mostly that's the manager's role in most organizations. So I'd be a little cautious about going down that road, even with a team that was really comfortable giving each other feedback. But I'd start first on something that's a little bit safer, that gives them the chance to develop trust, that gives them the chance to learn from each other. And I think that really gets you to what you want, which is the coaching goal. So that's where I'd start, Tony, is begin with maybe some expectations about what you're trying to create. Start with something more simple like feed forward. I'm going to put a video, by the way, linked in the episode notes for Marshall Goldsmith's Feed Forward system. It's a six or seven minute video. It's very straightforward. Almost anyone can use it in an organization or a team. And I think it'd get you started a bit on this process. So broadly speaking, there are two different types of feedback, formative and summative. I hear you attempting to do both of those things with the same process. I hear you in both what you shared here and also Dave's follow-up, wanting it to be formative, wanting it to be the kind of feedback that can grow and shape us and help facilitate longer-term change in people's levels of effectiveness. But I also hear you wanting it to be summative and, dare I say, even punitive. I didn't hear a lot about, oh, my gosh, there would be so much amazing feedback. We'd have to give everyone 100 percent raises. I heard like we would be with withdrawing, you know, any type of potential. And sometimes I feel like, my gosh, wouldn't you imagine if the person you know, wound up the hardest? They were they were awful at something. For some reason, that isn't just because they're not not naturally, it's not one of their strengths or sources of energy, but they actually did create magnificent change. But you happen to get that snapshot in time during the formative process that you treated as summative later on in a performance review. So I tend to not be a huge fan of summative types of feedback, the way that we orchestrate them in a business context. And spoiler alert, the next question will definitely be revealing that. And so I think feedback processes, especially the kinds that I think you're describing here and Dave thinks you're describing, are really more better suited toward formative feedback. And therefore, we want to have trust as a very, very high element. And if I think that either my feedback could affect someone else negatively, 
Even if it was just, I thought they could, my gosh, you could be so much freer. You could be even more effective than you are now. You're amazing. But imagine if you were able to do this. I'm trying to help them, but I know that it might hurt their, literally what they take home as a paycheck every month. I'm going to hold back from feedback in that way. And then I'm also going to hold back from as I'm trying to discern my own change process and trying to take on new habits, new skills. That's going to be very hard for me to do that well, because I need to be able to risk things, because I'm going to fail as I'm trying to change. And then I'm going to want to get right back up and try it again. And I'm just not going to be in a situation where I can. The final thing I'd like to share with you, change is hard. It's impossible without trust. And some of the things that you talked about here as your approach, I think are going to reduce the trust levels and therefore are going to reduce potentially the ability to create magnificent change and impact this team in a positive way. By the way, good for you for asking this question. I don't know if I would have done something like this earlier on in my career, but certainly I would have not asked. There's a whole bunch of stuff that earlier on in my career, I just did things because I stayed in my own head about it. So good for you for asking, Tony, and thinking this through, because I think that that's one of the challenges we all have as we get in our own heads on these things. We start thinking about, like, oh, this would work. This would be a good idea. I could try this. I really want to get to this outcome. And we mean well, like almost always we mean well, but then we end up having fallout that we don't anticipate. So good for you for asking. It's just a great reminder for all of us to keep asking and to get perspective from others because it helps us to make, I think, really better decisions. So thanks, Tony, for that question. Let's go on to the question from Lena. Lena is one of our Academy alums, Bonnie. She writes and says, my organization uses the nine box grid framework for talent mapping. I find it very narrow-minded and not fit for purpose. I wondered what other frameworks people are successfully using and could recommend. Let me start by talking about what the nine grid framework is for anyone listening who may not be familiar with it. It holds in common with other performance management or performance evaluation frameworks in that it looks at performance on a low medium and high scale, but it also adds in and what turns it in, turns it from more of a quadrant type of a thing to uh, these nine boxes that are described there is that it adds in potential as a measure. So not only rating someone's performance on a low, medium, high, but also rating their potential in the future for low, medium and high. Now, I know that I work with some people who also listen to this podcast. I don't think they listen every week. So hopefully, Dave, this is not the week that people are listening because... <laughs> is this where you get feisty? Oh, this is, this is where I get feisty. So I need to share a couple of things. One is that I have taken the long form of the strengths finder that not only tells you what your top five are, but actually ranks all 34 strengths from your most sorted top of the line all the way to your 34th as in it's not going to be a strength and you're better off. So my very, very bottom is consistency, which sounds terrible, Dave, because I'm actually you've, you've complimented me as being a consistent person. It doesn't mean I'm not consistent. Yeah, what it means is it's a different definition. It's of a consistent, different definition. What Gallup means than what we normally think of as consistent. Yeah. And so what it means is I don't love policy procedure that everybody gets treated the same, I tend to always be thinking, oh, but what about this? And well, this person's unique. And and so I'm already prone to not love formal performance evaluations. There is a ton of research on there 
that they're really not that effective. You don't get better performance because once a year you decide to all fill out a form on each other. And so we did recently, maybe at a place I work at, Dave, or maybe it's another place that I just passed by on my way to work that recently in the last, I think, two or three years adopted the nine box framework. And so far I'm rebelling against it. So now this people are listening, it's probably going to show up in my next performance review. But um, (laughs) there are many reasons why I resist it. But one of which is that the element of predicting someone's potential is shown to be discriminatory against women. So when you you look at some studies out there about women will not apply for a job if they don't think they have 100% of the qualifications. And men, the studies will show between 60 and 70%, they figure, what the heck, what do I have to lose? I'm going to go ahead and give this a go. And so just on looking at one paradigm, and of course, we are intersectional people, so there's other elements we could look at. But if I simply look at male versus female, then we know women are going to show up as lower and wind up um, being ranked lower if we're gauging them on potential and not on performance. I heard this, by the way, on a podcast, like the day after that, we had one of our one of our trainings or the place I drive by on my way to work had one of their trainings, and I just overheard it on the freeway. And so I do think that Lena is correct, that it is narrow minded. And it also opens up some potential for discrimination. And again, specifically on the element of that potential. How do you really rank what someone's potential is? And are you actually having your bias? And especially if you add to this, by the way, people self-evaluating on these things, how many of us are going to hold back and say, oh, gosh, I well, this is as high as I'm ever going to get. I can't even believe I got here. You know what I mean? Like that that's not going to be a great measure and may actually create this systemizing of that bias. You actually bake it in and you're starting to reinforce it. And then you're starting to see people being rated lower and then they're not getting the promotions. And we already know that the higher up you go in organizations, the less likely you are to see women and the less likely you are to see people of color. And please don't misunderstand me. We have intersectional identities. I don't want to sound binary as I'm describing these factors. But so you're asking, are there other frameworks? I am going to let Dave mostly take it from here. But I do just want to say Back to the prior question and also to your question here, Alina, I would just encourage all of us to be baking into our culture ongoing feedback. One thing that I love about the people that I work most closely with is there's just a normal thing to talk about. This is how I wanted to show up. How did I do with that? Or, you know, that we had talked about you giving doing this or this and, and just it becomes as normal when you have the high levels of trust. And when you're asking and receiving feedback from people who who really are competent in order to give you that kind of feedback. So performance evaluations, as formal as the ones that whether it's nine box or one of the other ones, they become so much less important. And dare I say, I mean, Dave and I, we have a very small business, but like we don't have performance evaluations because that feedback is just always going, whether it's praising people for doing amazing work or whether it's, hey, let's rethink this workflow and make it a little bit better. So I wanted to share that, but Davey may have some things to share about other models that Lena may want to look to. Yeah, indeed. And actually, I was curious as thinking about Lena's question, like, where did Ninebox come from? It turns out it, as far as I can tell, it comes from McKinsey originally years ago who started this. And like you, Bonnie, I've run into people who ha- are fans of Ninebox, few 
people in our community who swear by it and really like it. I think the challenge I have it too, and I'm I think I might be in a similar place as you and Lena of just it's it's just such a broad brushstroke. It's inviting you to sort of place an entire person <laughs> as low potential, high potential. I mean, in addition to all the things you said, I just think that's a really hard thing to do. And I think it's for me, it's more helpful to think about, okay, if I'm going to look at an entire person, like can is there is there a way I can look at that without kind of putting that label on them. And so we talked about one of these in the last Q&A episode, episode 638. I really like the model from Kim Scott from Radical Candor. We talked about the distinction between superstar and rock star of, and it's not so much potential, but it's trajectory, like growth trajectory. How quickly are you moving? And one of the things we talked about in that conversation, and I'll refer folks to that. We'll put a link to it with more of the detail. But at different times in our careers and on different areas, sometimes we move very quickly in our learning and sometimes we move much more slowly and that that's all normal and part of the process of learning. So I think that model is a really helpful one to look at too. If Ninebox is not working for you, I think Kim Scott's model is worth working for you. There's a really great article that first rounded a while back on this model from Kim Scott. I'm going to link it in the episode notes. So check that out if that's helpful. Where I find that this is really useful and the way I've often thought about it is rather than thinking about an entire person is to think about it from a skill-based framework. And so one of the models I was introduced to, and I cannot remember after all these years if it was Carnegie's model or if it was a model I just came across when I was at Carnegie. So forgive me, Carnegie folks, if I'm you're listening to this. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting that I would sometimes use with clients is we would look at, okay, sometimes we look at it as a person, but we look at it as an entire team. And it could be as simple as creating an Excel spreadsheet and placing the names of the people in a column on your spreadsheet on your team, and then on the rows, putting the skills that that team needs, or maybe the skills that the project needs. And then for each person and each skill, you can map out where is your team. And maybe you're doing that through the lens of a particular project, or maybe you're looking at that from your body of work over the course of a year. And you get a sense of where people land on all the different skills. And the way that we would do it is we had a three kind of three piece rating system. We had A, B, or C. A was on for this person on this skill, they're ready to perform it well and are able to execute it well. B was they aren't able to do that yet on their own, but they have the potential to do so in the future. And it wasn't there wasn't a like how long necessarily or how quickly, but it was more like, did they have the potential at some point and you could get really granular with it, do like B plus or B minus or whatever. And then C was on this skill, this person isn't likely to be able to develop the skill to the capacity the team or the project would need it at any point in this foreseeable future, which by the way, is not bad, right? Depending on the skills. I mean, you might have a team of people and you have one person who's an A on a particular skill that's really important for the team and that's the focus. And they may be C on everything else. And that's great like because that's their role. That's what the the role is asking them to do. And so we would often use that just as a way to start a conversation and to have a manager plan out, okay, who, who all is on my team? What are the kinds of things I know needs to be done for the work, for this project, for this team? And let me just get a sense of where people land today. And we would often come out of that conversation then with a couple of tactical things. And one of them was, okay, for the situations where there's bees, 
Where do I invest time and energy of helping people to improve their skills so they can become A's? Where on my team are their skills where there aren't any A's? And what do I need to be starting to think about from a succession planning standpoint? Or there's one person who's an A on a really critical skill and no one else has that skill. How do I start to develop talent or maybe go do some recruiting, right? And then it gives you a sense of just where your skills fall on the team. And it's really simple to do. You can pull on my Excel spreadsheet. This is not scientific, right? But it's just to give you a starting point for thinking as a manager, like, what is this broad brushstroke look like as far as all my different skill areas. And I think often that then surfaces two or three or four next steps that you may take to begin the process of what Bonnie said of like more one-on-one coaching, more regular feedback, taking the time to do one-on-one training and one-on-ones to be able to then advance those skills where it's appropriate. I just finished reading a book called Grading for Growth by Robert Talbert and David Clark. And the only thing I would say about that model, my suggestion to people would be to avoid using letters that actually are representative of grades that are given to people Mm. in many, um, almost all of the educational systems that we're familiar with. There is a lot of baggage that comes out of being great. And there's actually a lot of negative things that happen to us. So I I think this is a fabulous model, but maybe we just call it a check that I'm able to perform this. And if I'm not able to perform this skill with regularity and consistency, then the question becomes, and I think it's so great when we can go to a model like a strengths finder, really, you'd be asking like, so if it's for me in the middle of my strengths finders, where it's like, woo, woo is one of the ones like I can woo. Oh, I can woo. I can, but it's not my top 10, but I could certainly do that. And so if my job required it, you might go, okay, well, her job really requires it. So we're going to try to bump that one up a little bit. But if it's consistency and you want me all day, every day to be writing policies and make sure everybody's following the policies with 100% consistency, that's going to, you're going to be way better off to find someone else to do this and want to make sure that my job is shaped such that I'm doing things that I'm either naturally energized by and do well or yeah I could I mean I can do it I don't love it but but I certainly could make it happen and really trying to shape things such that you're not asking me to do something that doesn't come naturally doesn't bring me energy and other people in the organization actually could really really perform well and be energized by it I am so glad you said that because the one part of this model that sort of never landed perfectly with me is that you have to explain to people like ABC is not like great good mediocre like that's not the point of the model so yeah i think actually dump the abc thing <laughs> like pick other emojis animals i don't know something right <laughs> here is our next question this is a question from Kasim. Kasim writes i often hear the words quote leadership is a thankless job what do you do to feel fulfilled in your leadership role any rituals that help you avoid the feeling of thanklessness Kasim is one of our Academy alums, a member of our community. He posted this question in our member portal, Bonnie, for all of us to respond to. And I loved this question and got to thinking about it like, wow, what works for me? And there's a couple of things that I think have currently worked and have worked really well over the years. Uh, One of them is I have a practice most mornings of I talk to my friend Scott Barlow, who's been on the show a number of times over the years. He is the CEO and founder of Happen to Your Career, does incredible career work for so many leaders. And we talk almost every morning for five or 10 minutes, and we set our priorities for the day. And we usually write down three things. And then I have a part of that template that I use. At the very bottom, I have two questions 
I rotate between them. Sometimes I have both. Sometimes I do one or the other. It just depends on the season and the day. But the two questions that I ask are, what am I grateful for? And I, when I'm doing this, I just kind of force myself to write down something. And the other question that I've been using more recently, and I stole this from someone, Bonnie, and I cannot remember who I stole it from. So maybe it was from a past guest. But the question that I'm currently using is, where was I showed compassion or felt it for someone else? And that for me is just a really good reminder of like, what is going on great in the world? Like who's reaching out to me? Who's supporting me? And also like, even if I didn't do anything with it, where did I feel compassion for someone else? And I found those two prompts to be really helpful. And the thing that I've learned to do is there are days where it's really easy to write something. And like, everyone, there's days where I pull those up and I'm like, you know, whatever, like, it's just, I'm not in a good mood. And I've sort of forced myself to just write something, just to write a phrase, or it's even like, oh, it's sunny out. And just something really small, just to be in the practice of gratitude, even if it's something small or silly. So I'll write down something every single day on both of those. And that's just a nice way to help me to stay present to it. The other thing that has really worked well over the years is in my very first professional job I ever had, I worked for an education company and we worked with kids. And there was a practice within the company of every single day of telling a story about something great that happened with a kid. And I always thought that was a really cool practice, and there were times that I struggled figuring out what that story was and what story I was going to tell that day, of course. But when I got to Carnegie and started my career at Carnegie, oddly, my first manager had the exact same practice. We would start every weekly staff meeting with, let's begin with telling a client success story to each other, because sometimes we'd all be working on different projects. And so we would tell each other success stories, and a lot of times... The other people on the team didn't necessarily know about them because they hadn't been in that meeting or that conversation. And that was really inspiring. And it grounded us in what we were doing and why we were doing it, even in situations where something was more difficult or a difficult situation or trying to figure something out. And the way that I do that today, Kasim, is by facilitating our academy cohorts myself. I mean, I, there's a lot of folks out there that, you know, hire people to do facilitate. And I don't know, maybe someday I might do some of that, but I really love the work that I get to do with our members directly every single day of working with our academy members and our pro members and you and so many others. And I get to see the struggles, yes, of course, that everyone's dealing with, but I also get to see what people are doing through the work that I'm doing and through the podcast. And staying close to that and staying engaged with that is really, really great for me. And I think the opportunity for, I get the privilege of doing that because of the way this is structured and this this business and my role. And I get to get the nice emails that people write when something wonderful happens that they've done with something from the show. Thank you for all of you who've sent those in over the years. But I think that's that's not always easy in everyone's role and everyone's situation, depending on the organization you work in. And so I think finding a way for yourself or the members of your team to get back to the core, like, who do we help? Who do we serve? Who do we support, ultimately? And to go, I know some organizations have the practice of going out and meeting customers and and hearing success stories. Yes, that's great from a testimonial standpoint and learning about what's working and utilizing those things for marketing. But I think it's just as important, if not more so, 
for being able to keep the people who are doing the work so connected with the meaning behind it and the passion behind it. And then when the things inevitably get hard and tough and the inevitable struggles come, that you know the why behind what you're doing. And if there's some practice of doing that regularly, I think it helps so much. In 1970, Robert Greenleaf wrote an essay in which he coined the phrase servant leadership. And much of what you just described, Dave, is this idea that that he talks about of he tells a story in the very beginning about contrasting normally the hero's journey. You know, we we see this so many times of the hero and all the challenges that they go through, and that's what we hold up as leadership. But he tells the story as from some sort of mythology where this stranger comes and is basically helping all of these people travel and go on their journeys. And at the end, nobody realized that the entire time that it wasn't that they didn't have a leader, but the leader was viewed by the people on this journey as the follower because they were serving them in such powerful ways along the way. Servant leadership entails empathy, listening, stewardship and commitment. And when I start to find myself thinking about, oh, what I do, it's just so thankless, it doesn't matter. That is a place I don't want to stay very long. And so I will try to play tricks on my brain and think, well, who can I send out words of encouragement or thank or do something something small for someone who might be feeling like what they do is thankless, like that nobody notices. Just just yesterday, I, I sent an email out. We've got a colleague who's working on a website, and she's been working really closely with other colleagues who have to come up with the content and work with her. And, and it's just, these are sort of thankless jobs, like, like in addition to everything else that you already do with your job, now you have these other new things you need to do. And it was so fun just to send out words of encouragement to say that I know some of the things that you've been putting all this time and energy, whether it's the content for the website changes or the actual technology and design changes behind it, that maybe no one's going to notice. I tried to pick out like three to five things and send out a message with really, really specific things that I thought was really, you know, neat about what they've done and might have otherwise gone missed. Because I know what that's like to to do stuff and people don't notice the the little things. It's it's actually one of the things I really like about the person that I report to now in our organization is that he, he has such a good habit and a good practice of sending out little note cards to you. And they're not generic. There'll be one little thing, seemingly little thing that he'll notice where it's like, oh my gosh, like no one else would have noticed that that small thing, the level of, it's not the quantity of what he writes, but it's the level of preciseness that he'll pick something out where I'll go, wow, he noticed that. That feels really, really cool. So I'm trying to do that better and and take him as a model and just go, what's a small note I could send out with just something that I noticed something and encourage someone. And I'll tell you, when I do that, maybe I send out two, three notes or emails or, or some text messages or whatever. I'm never on the other side of that thinking, oh my gosh, this is a thankless job. It just joy begets more joy, begets more joy. It's really, it, it's, it can become infectious. So that's what I'm working at becoming better at in terms of just those notes of encouragement. They can go so far. And it's fun to just think about those, those seemingly small things that people do that maybe they're not used to people noticing and to try to amplify that in some way.
Bonnie and I both mentioned some additional resources. Those, of course, are linked up in the episode notes. In addition to that, three related episodes that we'd recommend for you. One of them is episode 143, How to Get Way Better at Accepting Feedback with Sheila Heen. We talk a lot about how to give feedback in many conversations about leadership and training and how to do better with feedback, but we don't talk enough about how to receive it. In episode 143, we talk with Sheila about her book, Thanks for the Feedback, and how to do a better job at being able to parse the feedback you receive. And that model I mentioned earlier of recognition or evaluation or coaching, those different ways to think about feedback comes right from her, episode 143, for a lot more there. We also talked about the process of administering a 360 in episode 341. Tom Henschel and I talked about how to process your 360 feedback. Maybe you're thinking about doing a 360 yourself, or maybe you've done one in the past, or you're supporting someone else who's going through a 360, either a peer or an employee. Episode 341, Tom walks us through step-by-step the things that he has done as an executive coach over the years to support folks uh, who are filtering through and thinking about the results from their 360s. Tom has administered many hundreds of those over the years, walks us through his thinking of how he helps people to get value from that process. Again, episode 341 for that. And then finally, I'm thinking about Kasim's question for us at the end on leadership sometimes feeling like a thankless job. I think a great message on that point is episode 505 with Patrick Lencioni. We talked about your leadership motive. There's a lot of reasons people get into leadership and there are some that are better than others. In episode 505, Pat and I talk about the motive behind leadership and what really works at its core to lead well, not only for others, but also to ensure that you're getting what you want from the leadership experience, episode 505 for that. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com if you haven't done so before, because you'll be able to access the entire library of resources and benefits inside the free membership. And one of those benefits is my library. It says Dave's library when you log in there. And I was thinking about the resources we mentioned today, but you can actually dig in and find many of the resources that we've mentioned on the podcast over the years and also a lot of resources we haven't. Because whenever I'm surfing the web, finding articles and resources for the weekly leadership guides, not only am I passing along those to you in episodes and in the weekly guides, but I'm databasing all of that. It's inside of Dave's library. When you click there, you'll see a whole bunch of hashtags, hundreds of them, on different topic areas. All of the things that I have found that I think will be helpful to you, sorted by topic, tons of resources in there. It's a great starting point if you're looking for a resource on a particular topic. It's just one of the many free benefits inside of the free membership. Again, just go over to coachingforleaders.com to set up that free membership. And if you've been a free member for a bit, you may want to learn about Coaching for Leaders Plus. One of the key benefits inside Coaching for Leaders Plus is hearing more from me. I am writing a long-form monthly article regularly. A recent one that I just sent out in the last few weeks is how to speak up when you're the quiet one. Many of our members have told me over the years that that's a challenge they have, how to learn to speak up in meetings and conversations. It's important skill for all of us. It's especially important for leaders and executive leaders to be able to do well. That's one of the many articles that are inside of the membership, one of the benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you'd like to find out more, just go over to coachingforleaders.plus.com. 
You'll find out about all the benefits there. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Priest. Next week, I'll be back with you for another conversation on leadership, and I'll see you back then on Monday. Take care.